Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, June 15th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 5 of our commentary on the Gospel of John. And this is titled, The Focus of the Disciple. And I won't give away the reason for that until we get to the middle of the presentation, probably. We will actually reach the end of John chapter 1 this evening. All four of our Christian Gospels are written in a very simple and forthright manner, and they describe very little outside of the interactions of Yahshua Christ with his disciples, and the people who he had encountered directly, along with some of his teachings and the miracles which he had done. And, of course, his final clash with the authorities. While sometimes they mention a few significant historical events or events which relate to the birth and life of Christ or the beginning of his ministry. Little is described of the world outside of the immediate gospel narrative. So there are no deep explanations or descriptions of history or current events, nor is there much concern for the political economic or social conditions in Judea or the greater part of the Roman Empire. The disciples of Christ are focused upon Yahweh their God and their own immediate circumstances, putting their trust in God, and evidently they did not care if the king was bombing Syria or invading Arabia. Now, that may seem like a sarcastic allusion to today's circumstances, and it certainly is. But there were similar things happening at the time of John the Baptist, and the writers of the Gospels and the portrayals of the characters involved in the ministry of Christ had no concern for them at all. Before continuing, we must have a digression. Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, as he is also called, appears often in all of the gospel accounts of the ministry of Christ. He is the son of the first Herod, known from Matthew chapter 2, at the birth of Christ. I should say, he is a son. The first Herod, Herod had many sons, and we will discuss others of them here. He is also mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, as Tetrarch of Galilee, where we also find another Herod called Philip, who is called the Tetrarch of Etruria and of the region of Trachonitis. Herod Agrippa I is the Herod of Acts chapter 12. His son, Herod Agrippa II, is the Agrippa of Acts 
chapters 25 and 26. And the Bernice mentioned there is the younger Agrippa's sister, and she is also alleged to have been his wife. Or at least, she lived as his, as his wife. The elder Herod Agrippa's sister is the Herodias of the accounts of the slaying of John the Baptist in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Herod mentioned there is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas and Herod Philip were half-brothers, and they had another half-brother, Aristobulus IV, who was the father of that elder Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa I. All three of the half-brothers had different mothers. Not all writers use the same names consistently for each Herod, so they are very difficult to follow through scripture and history. In Antiquities, Book 18, Chapter 5, Flavius Josephus describes how Herod the Tetrarch, called Antipas, had made arrangements to take to wife Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Herod, called Philip. This Herodias was the sister of yet another Herod, Herod Agrippa I. The Herod certainly kept it all in the family. Herod Agrippa I and Herodias were the grandchildren of the first Herod, called the Great, with Mariam, or Mariamna, the daughter of Alexandros the Hasmonean, who was a nephew of the High Priest Hyrcanus II. They were the children of their son, Aristobulus IV, and his wife Berenice, who was also his own first cousin. So, Aristobulus, Aristobulus IV, Herod the Great's son from Mariamna, the, the daughter of the Hasmonean High Priest, he married his own first cousin, the daughter of Herod's brother, and her name was Berenice. So the Herods kept it all in the family in every generation. Herod Antipas and his half-brother, Herod Philip, were sons of that first Herod through two of his later wives. So they were also half-brothers to Aristobulus IV, who was the father of the wife that they shared. So they were actually her uncles, or half-uncles, as well. So Aristobulus IV was the son of Herod's first wife, Mariamna. She's called Mariamna I in academic writings because Herod had another wife years later called Mariamna, after he had killed his first wife. Herod Antipas was the son of Malphase, a Samaritan woman, and Herod Philip was the son of the second Mariana, a later wife of the first Herod, and she was the daughter of a man named Simon, an Alexandrian who was appointed by Herod as the high priest around 25 BC, some time after he slew the last of the surviving members of the dynasty of the Hasmoneans.
These Edomite rulers are actually the antecedents of the Jews in New York, not of the simple country folk in West Virginia. So we read in Mark chapter 6, in reference to John the Baptist, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, meaning John, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. In other words, Herod was at least entertained by John. Returning to our sarcastic allusion to the bombing of Syria and the invasion of Arabia, at the same time that John the Baptist was publicly criticizing Herod Antipas for taking his brother Philip's wife, Antipas was engaged in a war with Aratus, the king of Arabia Petria, of which the principal city was Petra, the famous Petra. And Petra was at that time the principal city of the Nabataeans. But it was formerly known as the land of Edom in our Old Testament. There had been enmity between the two families, those of Herod and Aratus, since the days of the first Herod, who had coveted that land for himself. Even Julius Caesar once sought to gain Arabia for Herod, but he could not, as Josephus records in Antiquities, Book 16. However, an agreement was reached between Herod Antipas and a later Aratus, a descendant of the first Aratus, which did not last long due to Herod's incontinence. So we read in Antiquities, Book 18, about this time Aratus, the king of Arabia Petria, and Herod had a quarrel on the count following. Herod the Tetrarch, who is Antipas, had married the daughter of Aratus, and had lived with her a great while. But when he was once lodged at Rome, when he was once at Rome, he lodged with Herod Philip, who was his brother, indeed, but not by the same mother. For this Herod was the son of the high priest Simon's daughter. So the daughter of Aratus was jilted by Herod Antipas, who at that time fell in love with Herodias and had taken her to wife, a woman who was already the wife of this one half-brother, Herod Philip, and who was also his niece by another half-brother. But then Josephus also mentions border disputes between the two men. A few lines later where he wrote in Antiquities Book 18, 
So Aratus made this the first occasion of his enmity between him and Herod, who had also some quarrel with him about their borders of the country of Gamaletus, or Gamaletus. So they raised armies on both sides and prepared for war and sent their generals to fight instead of themselves, which Josephus, if we read between the lines, indicates is a sign of their own cowardice. And when they had joined battle, all Herod's army was destroyed by the treachery of some fugitives who, although they were of the Tetrarchy of Philip, joined with the army of Aratus. It is relatively clear in Josephus's Antiquities that the Edomite Jews had lusted for control of all of the Middle East even in the days of Herod and even while they were under the Roman Empire. Vitellius, who was a Roman consul and a later governor of Syria, had organized a retaliatory campaign against Aratus but Josephus was unclear as to why it was called off, citing only some religious superstitions and an omen favorable to Aratus. It was not until 106 AD that Arabia Petraea was conquered by Rome and reduced to the status of a province. Now, Vitellius, who is Vitellius the Elder, the father of the later and short-lived emperor of that name. He was consul in 34 AD and governor of Syria in 35. Herod Philip died in 34 AD. However, Herod Antipas had taken his brother Philip's wife at least several years before the war with Aratus and the consulship of Vitellius. So when Herod Antipas is defeated by the Arabian and loses his army, Flavius Josephus informs us of how that was viewed by the Judeans, where he wrote in Antiquities Book 18, just a little further on. Now some of the Judeans thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Judeans to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness toward one another and piety toward God and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, meaning to God, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now when many others came in crowds about him, meaning John the Baptist, for they were greatly moved by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people, might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, 
for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause, and not bring himself into difficulties, by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late. Accordingly, he was sent as prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the citadel I before mentioned. Joseph had, Josephus had mentioned this citadel earlier in his work and was there put to death. Now the Judeans had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure to him. First century Judea, early first century Judea, just as well as later, what was actually riddled with seditions there were tax rebellions, there were the Sicarii or the robbers who were marauding the countryside. So there was a lot of violence in first century Judea, which is basically Edomia, right, with some Israelites sprinkled among the mix. So Josephus tells us this story of John, John the Baptist, from his own perspective as a Pharisee, Josephus was a Pharisee. It is also telling that Josephus was not an eyewitness to any of this, since he was not even born until about 37 AD. He is working from older histories and extant accounts. He was also, by his own reports, a good friend of Herod Agrippa II, and evidently had inside information on Herod's family through that friendship. He even named one of his sons after Agrippa. With the view that these paragraphs from Josephus certainly are authentic, while it is not apparent that Josephus was a Christian, even though elsewhere he had made sympathetic comments concerning Christ, his testimony here shows that John the Baptist must have remained of good report among the sect of the Pharisees long after his death for him to be remembered in this manner. We mention all of this not only to elucidate the testimony of Josephus concerning John the Baptist but also to help put the gospel accounts into a greater historical perspective. The family of Herod was corrupt, and they were the instigators of many wars and other nefarious deeds, while they themselves were also always consistently transgressing the law. Of course, being Edomites, the law was never meant for them in the first place. However, claiming to be Judeans, having been accepted among the people as Judeans, and being of the so-called circumcision, they should have been expected to keep the law. So in spite of all their other sins, 
When John the Baptist rebuked Herod Antipas, he did not do it on the basis of politics or the economic or social condition in Judea. Rather, he rebuked him on the basis of his signal manifest transgression, that he took his own brother's wife. The disciples of Christ displayed no care for politics or international relations, even if their own rulers were engaged in war with the surrounding countries, or if the political state of Judea was unstable. The worldly Josephus described the death of John the Baptist in relation to these worldly things. But the apostles ignored them, focusing only on their own affairs. Furthermore, the apostles must have heard of the antics of Caligula, or the Roman wars of conquest in Britain under Claudius, which were raging all throughout the same time of the events which are recorded in the book of Acts. But Luke wrote not a word about them. This should be an example to us today to focus on our own affairs and not really care whether our evil government is invading Arabia or bombing Syria. Who gives a shit what Donald Trump does? On the other hand, it is difficult to truly understand scripture without an understanding of the broader historical context in which the gospel and the ministry of Christ are set. So for that reason, we are simply told to watch. And even watching, we will not really know what is about to happen. So we must be told to watch for a witness rather than because we can possibly control our futures. Therefore we read in Mark chapter 13, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house, and gave authority to his servants, and to every man his work, and commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house comes, at evening, or at midnight, or at the cockcrowing, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. We have no control over what our rulers do. So why should we be concerned with their politics? Why? If we think we have control, then we are obviously caught up in the satanic deception called democracy, and we have abandoned the knowledge of God. Yahweh is in control. And government is a punishment from God. Rather, white men need to repent and seek the things of Christ, which must come in the regulation of their own lives, their 
own affairs, as the warning from Christ said, and their relationships with their own brethren. As Christ had said in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. And then in John chapter 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And these things I command you, that you love one another. Only through obedience to this shall we prevail. As Paul had said in his second epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, which means according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And then the important part. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, when your obedience is fulfilled, the operative phrase there is when your obedience is fulfilled. But if we care more about what the president is doing or about the bombing of Syria, then we have already lost the real war. <laughs> However, there is even greater value in the testimony of Josephus concerning John the Baptist. Notice that Josephus had said of him that others came in crowds about him and that they were very greatly moved by hearing his words, that Herod feared the great influence John had over the people. And that the people seemed ready to do anything he should advise. John the Baptist could have been the Adolf Hitler of first century Judea. This helps to corroborate the testimony of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who, who all attested similarly to what Luke wrote in chapter 20 of his Gospel where the high priests and scribes had challenged Christ and he answered them by asking the baptism of John was it from heaven or of men so Luke explains and they reason with themselves saying if we shall say from heaven he will say why then believed ye him not but and if we say of men all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So John had great influence over the people, enough to strike fear in the hearts of their rulers. But he never used that influence to start a rebellion. And he himself was not consumed by what was going on in the world around him. Rather, he was isolated from the world around him. And he held to the mission which Scripture 
had prophesied for him to announce the coming to announce the coming of the Messiah to prepare ye the way of Yahweh as it says in Isaiah so for that Christ called him for that and other things the greatest of prophets this is another consideration which must be an example for us today when we assess the fulfillment of the Elijah ministry for Christ had said concerning some future time as well as the time of John the Baptist that Elias truly shall first come and restore all things this is after John the Baptist was slain but I say unto you that Elias is already come and they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they listed and of course even the apostles acknowledged that there he had spoken of John the Baptist if we believe that we are in that last time when Elias truly shall first come then we must also seek to adhere to and to fulfill what the scriptures say about that time where Malachi prophesied that he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers something which can only be done through love for one's brethren and our Christian identity message Christian identity is the only sect of Christianity seeking to honestly fulfill that ministry this this we explained recently in our commentary on the prophecy of Malachi I think just last year in part 5 which was titled the spirit of Elijah it may have been a little longer probably not much the first manifestation of the spirit of Elijah John the Baptist as it is prophesied in Malachi John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord in the manner which Malachi had prophesied of him through baptism the second manifestation of the spirit of Elijah is the identity message as that is the only message which can turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers this must be the focus of the disciple this is the only legitimate focus of the disciple the disciple today who believes he's bearing that message John's great influence among the people was ostensibly an asset to his mission of announcing the coming of the Messiah but he did so in very humble terms he never challenged the rule of those in power he challenged them on the basis of their 
fruits and their actions. He told them who they were, but he never attempted to overthrow them. So we read, we, I'm sorry, we last read in this first chapter of John's Gospel, and I will repeat from verses 32 through 37, and Johannes testified, saying that, I observed the Spirit descending as a dove from heaven, and it abode upon him, John the Baptist speaking of Christ, and I did not know him, but he who has sent me to immerse in water, he said to me, Upon whom you should see the Spirit descending and abiding upon him, it is he who immerses in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have testified that he is the Son of Yahweh. The next day, Johannes stood again, and two from among the students. And looking at Joshua walking about, he says, Look, the Lamb of Yahweh. And his two students heard the saying, and followed Yahshua. We have already discussed these verses. And the exclamation of John that Yahshua is the Lamb of Yahweh. We cited Isaiah chapter 53 and the prophesied healing of the people of Israel and forgiveness for their iniquities by a man brought as a lamb to the slaughter. We also cited the Passover lamb as a type for Christ in that very same respect. Another biblical parallel is the sacrifice of Isaac. Isaac being the ancestor of the children of Israel. The entire people are in his loins. He represents all of the posterity of Abraham who are to receive the promises. He, being sacrificed, about to face certain death, was relieved and granted life when Yahweh provided, provided a substitute on his behalf, the ram caught in the thicket. So we read in Genesis chapter 22, and Abraham lifted up his eyes, and looked, behold, and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead, or in a place, of his son. This too is a type for the coming Messiah. When all of Israel was once again subject to death, facing death for their transgression of the law. And Yahweh provided himself as a lamb in the body of Christ to die in their place. John testified on several occasions that Christ would baptize with the Holy Spirit as Christ himself also said 
in the first chapter of Acts. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is also a subject of prophecy. This we see in Joel chapter 2 in a messianic prophecy cited by Peter in relation to the gift of the Spirit as it is recorded in Acts chapter 2. At the first Pentecost of the apostolic era so we read from Joel and ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am Yahweh your God and none else and my people shall never be ashamed and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh meaning all of the flesh of Israel all of the flesh in which are the spirits of the children of God. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Now there is more to this. There is an early rain and a later rain, and Paul called this early rain a deposit for what is to come, which will be much greater at the second advent of Christ. There's no doubt. But this is nevertheless a prophecy of baptism in the Holy Spirit at the culmination of the ministry of Yahshua Christ. He says first, Ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I and Yahweh your God and none else and then he says later and it shall come to pass afterward at that first Pentecost that I will pour out my spirit likewise we read in Isaiah chapter 44 yet now hear O Jacob my servant And Israel, whom I have chosen, thus saith Yahweh that made thee, and formed thee from the womb, who will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and now Jesurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. So if Yahweh promised that I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and according to John, Yahshua Christ is he who immerses in the Holy Spirit, then Yahshua Christ is Yahweh, the Word made flesh, who had made that promise in both Isaiah and Joel. Then, in John chapter 14, he said, speaking of that spirit which he called the comforter. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. He did not say he will come to you. He said I will come to you. Where we see that he is also one and the same with that spirit. With this we shall commence with our presentation of John chapter 1 where two of the students of John 
had heard his testimony and followed after Yahshua. The focus of these disciples was certainly on the message of John, since they actually acted on what he had proclaimed. I noticed, and I could have commented and I didn't, that these denominational churches baptize people in water and call it the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's just straight bullshit. Only Yahweh can pour his spirit out upon his children. Nobody else can baptize with the Holy Spirit except Yahweh himself. Nobody. So all of these churches are just deceiving people. 1 John. I'm sorry. John 1. John chapter 1 verse 38. Then Yahshua, turning and looking at them following, says to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is spoken, being translated, Teacher, where do you abide? Some manuscripts have interpreted rather than translated, as we may distinguish Hermenuo from Methermenuo. John used each of these words later in his passage, so in our translation, at least for this chapter, I don't think I carried it all the way through the scripture, but at least in this chapter, where we have interpreted, the word is hermenuo, and where we have translated, the word is methermenuo. Wow. Hermes was the Greek messenger from the gods. He was the translator or the interpreter of the will of Zeus to men, originally just to Hades, to the spirits in the underworld. Hermes is the name from which we get the word Hermenuo, which means to translate or to interpret just an interesting piece of etymology. The actual word comes from a pagan concept. The language throughout John, where he occasionally uses Hebrew words and then supplies Greek interpretations in parenthetical remarks, helps to prove that his gospel was originally written in Greek. That's what we see here. Rabbi that's a Hebrew word, and then, which is spoken being translated teacher, that's an explanation and a Greek interpretation in a parenthetical remark. If this gospel were based on some Hebrew original, which was later translated into Greek, then phrases such as, which is spoken being translated, or which is translated, would not appear at all. And Hebrew terms such as Rabbi, Kephas, and Messiah would not be found in the Greek text. They would only have been naturally translated along with the rest of such an original text. Instead, John's writing shows that the common speech of the original disciples may have been Hebrew, but his gospel was originally written in Greek. While modern scholars argue that the people of Judea spoke Aramaic rather than Hebrew, 
they contend with the apostles themselves, who explicitly referred to their language as Hebrew. Six times in his writing, John called their language Hebrew, in John chapters 5 and 19, and Revelation chapters 9 and 16. Likewise, Luke, in chapter 23 of his Gospel, and three times in the book of Acts, in chapters 21, 22, and 26, had referred to the language of the Judeans as the Hebrew tongue. Aramaic is mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, and in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, where the King James Version calls it Syrian or Syriac. It may be true, as it is evident in Nehemiah chapter 8, that the sayings of the law had to be interpreted for the people, which by itself can indicate that their dialect had changed. We know that there were a lot of Aramaic words injected into the scriptures, the language of the scriptures after the time of Daniel. But the apostles nevertheless referred to their language as Hebrew, and we should trust that they themselves knew better of the language that they were speaking than scholars now know today. It may have been a different Hebrew from the Old Testament Hebrew, but look at American English compared to the English of the 1600s when our own ancestors first started coming here. It's drastically different. There were 1,500, 1,600 years, just over 1,500 years between Moses and Paul of Tarsus. There are only 400 years between the pilgrims and modern America. And the pilgrims would not recognize our language. I'll tell you that now. They might pick up a few words here and there. The disciples of John had asked Yahshua where he lived, and now he responds. He says to them, You come and see. Therefore, they came and saw where he stays, and they remained with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. The Codex Alexandrinus has, It was about the sixth hour, or about noon. The tenth hour is about 4 p.m. The counting of the hours began at sunrise. The words stay and remain in this verse are from different tenses of the same verb, mino. The first occurrence is in the present tense and the second in the aorist tense. As I have already explained earlier in this commentary, my translation endeavored to show the tense of verbs which John himself had used. Even if we often see present tense verbs where a past tense would be expected, so we have stay rather than stayed. And at the beginning of the verse we have he says rather than he said. I hope to have done this consistently throughout my translations, in spite of any consternation it may cause among the English readers. It's not 100% consistent. We will see one exception later in a chapter. Andreas, the brother of Simon Petrus, Simon Peter, was one of the two of those hearing Johannes and following him. 
He finds his own older brother Simon and says to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. As we stated before, where John wrote Messiah, which is translated Christ, he shows us that his gospel was originally written in Greek. Where the text says of Andrew that he finds his own older brother, the Codex Sinaiticus and the majority text have that word protus in the nominative case where the phrase would be read, first he finds his own brother, which is the way that the King James Version has it. But our text follows the 3rd century papyri P6, P66, and P75, P, I'm sorry, P75, and the codices Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, which all have the word protus in the accusative case, along with the rest of the phrase, proton tona delphon ton idion, making it part of the object of the verb and compelling it compelling us to read it as we also read idius as an adjective modifying the noun for brother, since it agrees in case with the noun for brother. So here it is older, as Liddell and Scott explain in their definition for the word proterus <coughs> in part B, part 1 of part B, describing such use as an adjective, this very same adjective, this very same form, protus. As we have already explained, the Israelites of Judea, some of the Israelite Samaritans, and even Israelites of the ancient dispersions, such as the Magi of Matthew chapter 2, were all anticipating the coming of the Messiah of Israel at this very time. So Andrew attests here that Yahshua is that Messiah, certainly understanding the implications of the proclamation of the Baptist that he was the Lamb of God. Here in verse 40, John the Apostle informs us that Andrew was one of the two disciples who heard the testimony of John the Baptist and follow Christ. But he does not, he does not name the other of those two. That leads us to conclude that the other of the two was John himself. While John mentioned his own name five times in the Revelation, he never mentioned his own name in his gospel or his epistles, which I believe were written earlier than the Revelation. Otherwise, if the second of these men is not John himself, then John does not at all account for his own introduction to Christ even though he is one of the sons of Zebedee, and the sons of Zebedee are already counted among the disciples of Christ in the opening verses of chapter 2. So with this, 
we are confident in our conclusion that the first two disciples of Christ were Andrew and John, the author of this gospel. That's why John did not name the second of those men who heard the testimony of John the Baptist and follow Christ. That is also how John can write an accurate first-hand account of these events because he was there. Now, still speaking of Andrew and Simon, he led him to Yahshua. Looking at him, Yahshua said, You are Simon, the son of Johannes. Now, the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have Jonas there, or Jonah, where our text follows the 3rd century papyri, P66 and P75, and the Codex Sinaiticus, and the Codex Vaticanus. So that's why the King James Version has Simon, son of Jonah, because of those two. Well, well the majority text is older, a collection of older manuscripts upon which the King James Version is based. And those that collection of older manuscripts came through the Byzantines and they were originally heavily influenced by the Codex Alexandrinus. So that Codex very often agrees with the King James Version where we see differences between the King James Version and other older codexes. So the King James has Simon son of Jonah. The older manuscripts have Simon son of Johannes or John, which is or or which must be a different John than any of the Johns that we have encountered here in this gospel up to this point, right? This is a it was a popular name at the time. Simon was called Cephas. You shall be called Cephas, which is interpreted a stone. Cephas is said to be from an Aramaic word for stone, and it appears in the Old Testament only in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11, where it apparently relates to some part or feature of a timber, and it is translated as beam in the King James Version of Habakkuk. In the sense in which it appears in Habakkuk, Jesenius says that Cephas is equivalent to the Greek word cantharus, which is literally a dung beetle, but could also possibly refer to a knot in the wood. And that is actually the better rendering, the better understanding of the term. It's not a beam, it's a knot in the beam. I'll explain that. A verb which is spelled with the same letters as those of this noun in Habakkuk, K-P-S, or in Hebrew the P-H could stand for the P, K-P-H-S, or Kephas, is said to mean to tie like to tie in a knot, 
On page 678, in column A of a Dictionary of the Targums, Talmuds, and Midrash, volume 1, which was published in New York and London in 1903, and I will include a PDF edition of that with this program. In any event, the New Testament writers equated Cephas with Petrus, which in Greek is with all certainty a stone. In our opinion, Simon was called this right from the beginning because Joshua certainly knew beforehand just how stubborn he was going to be. The name Peter is merely a transliteration from a Greek word for stone which is Petrus. Many other versions write Peter here, which is ridiculous. However, it is certain that the Roman Catholic Church favors the obfuscation of the difference between the Greek words Petrus and Petra, stone and bedrock, which all those versions help to facilitate. It is also certain that John intended that Petrus be understood literally, so we did not translate it as a name. To their credit, neither did the King James translators do that here. Paul refers to Simon in Greek as Cephas several times in his epistles, in both 1 Corinthians and Galatians, writing the Hebrew word in Greek letters. It seems to me that Paul used the Hebrew word affectionately, where more often in Galatians he called him Peter. However, using Cephas, Paul also informs us with certainty that Paul, that Christ meant to refer to him as a stone, where Christ had said later on in the Gospels, to Peter, you are a stone, and upon this rock, upon this bedrock, I will build my church. The Catholic Church tries to twist that to make people believe that they're the legitimate church built upon Peter, who, who is a, a stone. But the type of stone which Petros is, is the stone that you could pick up and throw. Where the type of stone that Petra is, is the hard core of rock found under the ground. That's why it's bedrock. So Christ was not saying that he would build his church upon the Apostle Peter. He wasn't saying that at all. As for Peter's stubborn nature, there were several times that he had to experience something three times before he understood or accepted it. First, after boasting that he would never forsake Christ, he was destined to deny Christ three times before realizing his own sinful nature. Then, after the resurrection, Peter was told three times by Christ to feed his sheep, and he seemed to become agitated with the repetition 
as it is recorded in the final chapter of John. With this, Christ expressly elucidated Peter's stubborn nature by telling him in John chapter 21, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girt yourself and walked about wherever you wished. But when you should grow old, you shall extend your hand, and another shall gird and bring you where you do not wish. Finally, in Joppa, at the home of Simon the Tanner, Peter received the vision of the sheet as it is recorded in Acts chapter 10. And he was shown the same vision three times. And still, we read that Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean. Then, when the men for whom the vision came to him had appeared at the door of Simon the Tanner, finally the Spirit instructed him explicitly to get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Another manifestation of Peter's stubborn nature is when Christ revealed to Peter what he had to suffer as they traveled on the road. And Peter argued with Christ and tried to tell him, no, that wasn't going to happen. And Christ said to him, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was acting as an adversary to Christ, wanting to somehow bypass or change the will of God, which was written in stone. So it is apparent that for this aspect of his nature, Simon was called Petros, or stone. As another digression, to me there are a few more obvious examples, I'm sorry, there are few more obvious examples of the absolute incompetence of the pastors and commentators of the denominational churches than their descriptions of the selection of the apostles. And I'll give one example. There's a Judeotard organization. I should call them Judeotards all the time. That's what we call denominational Christians in social media. This Judeotard organization calls itself Unity.org. And they wrote the following concerning Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 20. Now, this passage is where Christ walks up to the chosen apostles on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and says, follow me, and they follow him. So this church, this Judeotard church, wrote the following. How did Jesus know to call these particular fishermen? What did he see in these apparent strangers that told him they were ready to respond to his message? And why did Peter and Andrew leave the security of their lives so readily to follow a mysterious stranger? Now, this was written apparently by a clown who calls himself Reverend Ed, who could not really answer the questions that he posed. Apparently, Mr. Ed, as I would rather call him, I'd rather call him Mr. Ed, because he's dumber than Balaam's ass, 
has followed thousands or even tens of thousands of pastors before him who read Matthew chapter 4 and have interpreted it without first processing any of what John informs us here in this chapter. The fishermen on the shores of Galilee, they knew to follow Christ because some of them, if not all of them, had already known him, having heard the testimony of John where he announced him as the Lamb of God, and those who heard it excitedly announced it to the others, who accepted their testimony, especially after the interaction between Yahshua and Nathaniel, which is Nathanael, I should call him, which is here in the passage that follows. These men were with Christ as he was in Judea and before he returned to Galilee, immediately after he was baptized by John. And then we see here that he returned to Galilee with them and met their companions. So these things happened before Christ decided to begin his mission when he asked these same men to accompany him. So now, after he becomes known to Andrew, John, and Simon Peter, we read, the next day he desired, desired to depart for Galilee. So we can, already be, we can be certain that he already knows Andrew, John, and Simon Peter before he went to Galilee, and they went with him. The next day he desired to depart for Galilee. Then he finds Philip, Philippus, and Joshua says to him, Follow me. And Philippus was from Bethsaida, from the city of Andreas and Petrus, Andrew and Peter. The name Philip is a Greek name which means lover of horses. The name Andreas is also a Greek name and means manly, being derived from the Greek word andros, or man. There's another word for man. There's two other words for man. I'm sorry. There's andros, there's aner, and there's anthropos. Simon is derived from an old Hebrew name, Simeon. The name John, or Johannes, is also Hebrew meaning Yahweh gives graciously. Bethsaida is from a Hebrew term, which means house of fish. So we can see, while not all of their names were Greek, we can clearly see the Greek influence in the lives and the families of, their, of the apostles, because their parents gave them these names, right? Their parents must have had a Greek influence. They must have known some Greek. They must have known the meanings of these names. Meanings of names were very important to the Hebrews, even in the New Testament period. Now here we are amending the Christogenian New Testament translation slightly to reflect the idea that it is much more likely to be Andrew who had found Philip. The text is ambiguous, and currently it reads in a manner which portrays Christ as having found Philip, 
which we distinguished by capitalizing the pronouns. While that is possible, it is much more likely, and I'll explain why, it is much more likely that Andrew, or perhaps Peter, had found Philip because he was from their own town and they already knew him. This is also more plausible, since there is no sentence division in the Greek where it says, he finds Philip. But then, immediately after it says, and Yahshua says to him. And the fact that John provides a proper name at this point, Yahshua, indicates to us that the subject changes from the preceding verb. For this, we have changed the punctuation of the entire sentence, departing from the punctuation found in the Novum Testamentum Grece, which we had followed in our old reading of the verse. So that the next time we get Christogenian New Testaments printed, that verse will be changed slightly. The next verse also supports our change of opinion on this verse. As it becomes apparent that not only did Andrew, and perhaps also Peter, find Philip, but they also must have explained to him everything that had happened with John the Baptist, enough to make Philip understand who Yahshua was, why they were following him. While that is not explained here by John, it is nevertheless evident since Christ asserts later on that he did not testify concerning himself. And that is the pattern which is also evident throughout Scripture. So after Philip meets Joshua, Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, He whom Moses and the prophets had written about in the law we have found, Joshua, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, so, as we have asserted, Philip must have gotten that information from Andrew and Peter. It could not have been Yahshua who told him this. Because, as Yahshua is recorded as having said in John chapter 5, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. And as we have also already stated, the Apostle John is present with them throughout these events. Although he does not mention himself here, he must be that second unnamed disciple who was with John the Baptist along with Andrew. So Nathanael, who bears a name which means gift of God, the Greek equivalent to Theodore, learns from Philip what Philip had learned from Simon and Andrew and John. Verse 46, And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good be from Nazareth? Philippus says to him, Come and see. And now we're going to spend probably too much time, a great deal of time, on that statement. Can anything good be from Nazareth? Or Nazareth. The TH doesn't exist in Greek, neither does an SH. There is no SH in Greek. 
In Hebrew, there's no letter SH, but all of the lexicons explain that the letter Shin or Sin, the letter S, can be pronounced as an SH, and in words that are transliterated, they're often transliterated SH, and we see that in a lot of names and place names. We see it in Joshua. The letter T, likewise, can be pronounced as a TH. The Tav, or the Tau in Greek, becomes a Thav, or the Thau, T-H-A-V, instead of T-A-V. And we see that in a lot of place names and transliterations from Hebrew. So an S and an SH in Hebrew are interchangeable, and a T and a TH in Hebrew are interchangeable. Now the Greeks had a letter that represented the TH, the theta. But they didn't have a letter that represented the SH. They didn't have that word or that, that, that sound, I'm sorry, in their language. So they would probably have called Yahshua Yasu or Yesu, Yesus in the nominative case, but they would never have called him Yahshua because they didn't have that sound. The Hebrews, that's a different story. Now we can only wonder about Nathaniel's, Nathanael's skepticism concerning Nazareth. Nathaniel's name actually ends in A-E-L rather than in the customary English I-E-L. We can only wonder about his skepticism concerning Nazareth. There is no mention of Nazareth in any of the profane literature, meaning the secular literature, until the writings of Julius Africanus, which are marginally secular, in the early 3rd century A.D., while the town is mentioned in the writings of Justin Martyr and Origen before that, there is nothing which is descriptive enough to lead us to understand what it is that Nathaniel means here. But in writings attributed to Christian bishop Gregory Thaumaturgus, or Gregory the Miracle Worker, who is also known as Gregory of Neo-Caesarea, which was the capital of Pontus in Anatolia. Writings which are deemed to be spurious, or at least dubious, so it's not even certain that Gregory had written them, in a work titled Twelve Topics on the Faith, we find a line concerning Christ which reads, he was brought up in Nazareth, but in divine fashion he sat among the doctors and astonished them by a wisdom beyond his years in respect to, to the capacities of his bodily life as it is recorded in the Gospel narrative. And the reference is to Christ as a youth. And what is marvelous about this is that the writer is insinuating 
that such an education could not have been obtained in a place like Nazareth. This leads us to believe that Nazareth may have been despised simply because it was rural and perhaps its citizens were therefore seen as uncultured. Sort of like the Jews in New York look upon the rural areas of Appalachia today. No differently. Most popular references cross-reference Matthew to Judges chapter 13 and an explicit statement concerning Samson where he wrote concerning Joseph and the Christ child in chapter 2 of his gospel. And he said, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Some references also cross-reference that passage of Matthew to Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 where it says, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. A messianic prophecy which we shall discuss shortly. Those references to Isaiah 11.1 we consider to be correct. Whether the cross-reference to Judges is appropriate or not, and we think not, there always seems to have been confusion between the Judges period sect of the Nazarites, to which Samson belonged, and the label Nazarene, as a person who lived in the much later town of Nazareth was called. But regardless of whether or not we think Matthew was citing Judges chapter 13, or only Isaiah chapter 11, the confusion between the two meanings, if it is indeed confusion, is not at all new. The early 3rd century Christian writer and bishop of Carthage, Tertullian, said the following in Book 4, Chapter 8 of his work against Marcion. The Christ of the Creator had to be called a Nazarene according to prophecy. Whence the Jews also designate us, on that very account, Nazarenes after him. For we are they of whom it is written, Her Nazarites were whiter than snow, even they who were once defiled with the stains of sin, and darkened with the clouds of ignorance. But to Christ the title Nazarene was destined to become a suitable one, from the hiding place of his infancy, for which he went down and dwelt at Nazareth, to escape from Archelaus, the son of Herod, because Herod had already died while Christ was in Egypt. Tertullian was applying the famous line from chapter 4 of Jeremiah's Book of Lamentations to Christians, something which we would also do. But he nevertheless confounded Nazarites, and Nazarenes. So where Paul of Tarsus was said to be a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, 
we made the following comments several years ago. In our commentary on chapter 24 of the Book of Acts, although we will amend them slightly here, and we will shorten them up a little, these are the words of the orator who brought, brought to Paul's trial by the Judeans, where Paul is called a leaser, leader, a leader of the sect of the Nazarians. This is nearly the same Greek word which appears in Josephus's account of Herod Agrippa I, where some years earlier, as Whiston translates it, he had ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn. Agrippa I was king of Judea from 41 to 44 AD, and the dominions were split up again after his death. There are two different Greek words, which are both said by Strong in his dictionary to mean of Nazareth. Nazarenus, which is always Nazarene in the Christogenian New Testament, and Nazorahius, which is always Nazorian in the Christogenian New Testament. While the two Greek forms of the word had the same meaning, the distinction between them was purposely maintained in our translation. The King James Version often translates either word as of Nazareth, and Nazarenus may have been the more proper of the two forms for that purpose. Thayer does not put of Nazareth in his definition for Nazarius. According to the Moltengeden Concordance to the New Testament, to the Greek Testament, from which some manuscripts may differ, Nazarenus, or Nazarene, is found in Mark in chapters 1, 10, 14, and 16, and in Luke chapter 4 and 24, while Nazorahius is found in Matthew chapter 2 and chapter 26, in Luke chapter 18, so Luke used both forms. In John chapter 18 and chapter 19, and in Acts, Luke again, in chapters 2, 3, 4, 6, 22, 24, and 26, so Nazarius is used a lot more commonly, and Nazarene was only used by Mark and twice in Luke's Gospel. However, as they are used throughout the New Testament, the two forms are clearly synonyms. But in the manuscripts of Josephus, we find a third form, where the word is evidently spelled Nazirahius. Now, the differences in one vowel from that later form in the New Testament, Nazorahius, Nazirahius, or Nazirahius, N-A-Z-I-R-A-I-O-S, rather than N-A-Z-O. It is this form which is used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament Nazarites, the special priesthood ordained by Yahweh in Numbers chapter 6. However, often in the Septuagint, in the Greek, 
we see instead a literal translation not using any of these words but using words that mean one who has taken a vow or one who has vowed or even consecrated ones referring to men who have taken a vow of separation where that word Nazirahius only appears in the book of Judges and in 1 Maccabees and this one time in Lamentations chapter 4 verse 7. Here it is evident that the sect of Christians was called Nazarahians by the Judeans of the first century. As Josephus also referred to them in that one place describing the acts of Herod Agrippa I, which can only be a reference to Christians in Judea. This usage does not refer to the Old Testament Nazarites, as the followers of Christ had little to do with the sort of vow taken by them, which is described in Numbers chapter 6. Rather, Christians were called Nazarenes or Nazarachians because they were followers of Yahshua the Nazorian or Jesus of Nazareth. The first century Judeans who rejected Christ had apparently shunned the words for Christ and Christian. Because if they had used them, then by that very use, they would have been admitting that Yahshua was indeed the Anointed One, the expected Hebrew Messiah, as the Greek word for Christ is the equivalent of the meaning of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So a Jew could not even use a Jew. If he is being true to his own belief cannot even use the term Christ or Christian. He just can't. Or he's denying himself. Early Jews knew that. The Jews today, they just tell on themselves every time they call us Christians. The word Nazareth is derived from one of the Hebrew words for branch. Therefore, the use of it in the New Testament and the fact that Christ had lived there in his youth in order to properly acquire the name certainly seems to be an allusion to the fulfillment in Christ of the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 11 where we read, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch that word Netzer shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither reprove after the hearing of his ears 
But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. The word branch in Isaiah 11.1 is the Hebrew word netzer, Strong's number 5342, from which the name of the town Nazareth is apparently derived. That T-S sound translated to a Z. Other prophecies of Christ, and, and that T-S sound translated to a Z, is why sometimes you see Sidon spelled with an S, and sometimes it's spelled with a Z, right in your King James Version of the Bible, Zidonians. Because some translators saw the Sidon in Hebrew, which began with that T-S letter, T-S-I-D-O-N, and they spelled Zidon instead of Sidon. So Netzer is the word from which, which means branch, is the word from which the name of the town Nazareth was apparently derived. Other prophecies of Christ are found in Jeremiah and Zechariah, which refer to him as the branch, although they use a different Hebrew word, zemak, also a T-S word, tesemak or zemak, Strong's number 6780. But even with the use of a different word, the prophecies had the same force of meaning, and Christ, being called a Nazarene, indicates the fulfillment of those prophecies in him. So we read in Jeremiah chapter 23, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that they shall no more say, Yahweh lives, who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But Yahweh lives, who brought up and who led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country, and from all countries whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. That's a Christian identity prophecy, if I've ever heard one. Then in Jeremiah chapter 33, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith he shall be called. Yahweh our righteousness. And again in Zechariah chapter 3. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, 
thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, and again in Zechariah chapter 6, and speak unto him, meaning Joshua, the high priest at the time, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. And he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and a council of peace shall be between them both. The reference to the temple of the Lord there has a double meaning. First, as Joshua the high priest at the time, was the high priest at the time that the second temple was being built, and ultimately because Joshua the high priest never sat on the throne of Yahweh. And ultimately, as another Joshua, Joshua Christ, is the temple of Yahweh in the flesh. The high priest Joshua was a prophetic type for Christ in several respects. Now we shall read a little further on in that prophecy of Isaiah, from where in chapter 11 in verse 1 we saw the first prophecy which said that there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We see that the theme continues in verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentile seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria, meaning from the Assyrian captivity, not from Assyria literally, and from Egypt, meaning those who hadn't returned to to God since the Egyptian captivity because many Israelites never went with Moses but traveled to Europe across the sea instead and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar Cush, Shinar, Babylon and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea all the places where the children of Israel were immediately deported finally we see once again in the reference to Christ in the Revelation, first in chapter 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. I'm sorry, my throat is very dry tonight. And then in chapter 22 of the Revelation, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you things, these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. The light come into the world. Now from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, There shall come forth a rod from out of the stem of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Jesse's long dead when Isaiah wrote. Jesse's dead maybe 
500 years when Isaiah wrote, at least 400. And from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, where it says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, a root, not a descendant, a root. And from Jeremiah 23, 5, where it says, I will raise unto David a righteous branch. And from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, where Christ is called the root of David. He's the branch of David, but he's also the root of David. And finally, from Revelation 22, 16, where Christ declares that I am the root and the offspring of David. We see that he must be God the Father as well as God the Son. Because only the father of Adam could be the root of David and Jesse. This is yet another proof that Yahshua Christ is the incarnation of Yahweh God himself. I could probably do a whole podcast just on these passages. Now, Nathanael, informed of the coming of the Messiah by Philip, follows Philip's beckoning to come and see. Yahshua saw Nathanael coming towards him, and he says about him, Look, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael says to him, From where do you know me? Yahshua replied and said to him, Before Philippus called you, being under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael replied to him, Rabbi, you are the son of Yahweh. You are king of Israel. The word called in that passage, the word called is from an aorist infinitive form of the verb. So here is one example where it seemed quite difficult in English to maintain precisely the tense of the verb as John had written it before Philippus called you. The word rendered as guile here is dollus, Strong's number 1388, which is most literally, according to Liddell and Scott, bait for catching fish and therefore any cunning contrivance for deceiving or catching and generally any trick or stratagem or any abstract craft, cunning, or treachery. Israelites can have guile as Peter warned in chapters 2 and 3 of his first epistle and as David warned in the 34th Psalm. Paul also used it in reference to Israelites where it is translated as deceit in the King James Version in Romans chapter 1 verse 29. There it is evident that guile is a characteristic acquired by the sinful. However, every Israelite has a promise of attaining to what David had described in the 32nd Psalm. Yahweh imputes not I'm sorry. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is 
no guile. The Spirit of God within us cannot have guile. We being in our sinful nature can neglect the Spirit to follow the ways of the flesh. Only the children of Israel have this promise that Yahweh will not impute sin. So the Apostle Paul cited that psalm in Romans chapter 8 and he said even as David also describes the blessedness of the man under whom God imputes righteousness without works without performing rituals saying blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin for the same reason the Apostle John wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle my little children these things write I unto you that you sin not and if any man sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous and again in chapter 3 whosoever is born of God does not commit sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God he is racially pure Nathaniel is convinced that Yahshua is the Christ simply because of the prescience which Christ had displayed to him with that single statement which is also the sign of a pure heart on the part of Nathaniel and Christ responds Yahshua replied and said to him because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree you believe greater than these things you shall see and he says to him truly truly I say to you you shall see the heaven having been opened and the messengers of Yahweh ascending and descending before the Son of Man the language invokes the experience of Jacob at Bethel where we read in the book of Genesis and he dreamed and behold a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it and behold Yahweh stood above it and said I am Yahweh God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it and to thy seed and thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth and thou shalt spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed those Genesis 10 families of the white Adamic race the families of the land the families of the descendants of Noah so we see that this too is tied to the immutable promises of God which were made to the patriarchs of the people of Israel which Christ had come to fulfill later we see in the famous last days prophecy of Matthew chapter 24 and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn 
and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the children of Israel, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the day for which Nathanael waits. The prophecy of the end is the same as that which was made at the beginning, and we must wait with him. Until then, we must have that same focus which John the Baptist had. A man who could easily have been let off course, but who did not waver from his own purpose. So our purpose must also be placed in order before any carnal concerns relating to what is going on in the rest of the world. Just as John the Baptist did not care to overthrow Herod, did not care to lead a rebellion. And as the apostles of Christ did not care for the wars of the Jews or the Romans. After five weeks now, this concludes our commentary on John chapter 1. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.